Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Oh, sapientia, Atingens a fine usque ad finem portite, suavite disponentque omnia. Veni ad docendum nos, viam prudentiae. Tuxtomus Israel, qui mois in inie flamme rube apparuisti, et in sina legem deisti, veni ad Sedentem in ten. 
Welcoming back Monsignor Charles Pope. What I propose tonight with these O antiphons uh, would be to speak to you uh, of them in a rather a, a devotional sense. I mean, we'll certainly study them, but um, the, the main thing is to pray. These, these are antiphons from the liturgy, and they, they, they summon us to prayer. So with all that in mind, um, I'd also just like to say a couple quick introductory notes. Um, I really hope you will support the Institute. It's incredibly just fortuitous that this has come along, you know, at a, at a critical point in our church history. And it's always so encouraging, you know, to be in a room like this with people who want to know the faith, who are hungry for the faith. And uh, we're living in times where people want to marginalize the church, they want to marginalize God. But I, I see that uh, you're, you're out here to listen to a loudmouth priest like me on a Sunday night. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great privilege to be with you, and I, I, I'm grateful for your patience and listening. This is a great work, and it's not just reaching folks in this room, but through the internet, who knows, all over the world. There may be folks down in Australia right now watching us, amen? And uh, so, hello in Australia. Uh, but but I, I would say that um, it's a work that is using the best tools of the new media, 
but also is, um, is uh, you know, keeping us rooted in the tradition. So I encourage you uh, to be as generous as you can. All right, um, the O antiphons, uh, the, um, somebody said to me the other night at class, they said, what is, uh, what is an antiphon? I thought, gee, you know, I, now I've got to come up with a definition of an antiphon. But again, an antiphon is basically a, uh, uh, some sort of um, uh, a statement that frames out a longer text. So usually it, it, it comes before the recitation of a psalm. And in some way it summarizes it or it, it contextualizes the scripture of the psalm that we're about to read or some other lengthy scripture. So an antiphon is basically a short, pithy, I prefer the older word, laconic, um, um, you know, statement of the faith. And these are very, these O antiphons, um, the, the, the seven of them are very beautiful. They're, they're very compact statements of theology that relate to the uh, coming of our Lord and who he is, and it, it ties us back into the Old Testament prophets and the prophecies about Jesus, but it also brings us forward and shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Now, these particular O antiphons are recited beginning December 17th, and all the way up through the 23rd, and there are always antiphons in the divine office or the liturgy of the hours for the Magnificat. So as you may know, we, in the office, in the evening prayer or vespers, we stand up to sing the Magnificat, but before we sing it, we usually sing some sort of antiphon which states or f puts the, uh, the Magnificat in some sort of a context. Um, we, our soul is proclaiming the greatness of the Lord. Why? Well, because of this particular feast or this particular occasion or this particular thought. So the purpose of an antiphon is to kind of focus our prayer. And as such, the antiphons of the office, and we, you probably best know them in the responsorial psalms that we sing at Mass. You know, we have a little antiphon, one of the lines usually from the psalms drawn to kind of focus it, and then we sing the verses of the psalm. And it's, these, these, but these particular antiphons are magnificently wonderful, compact theologically, but they point us to a very rich tradition. So I got a big task. <laughs> now, the, the old antiphons you probably know best from the old hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Hmm? Yeah. They're, they're, that, all those verses are basically the old antiphons, just poetically re, re, you know, reworked. Uh, so, for example, we're going to uh, look at the very first one. But let me just read you the, um, the, the text that you're most familiar with from the, from, the, uh, uh, from the hymn. O come thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh, to us the path of knowledge show, and teach us in her ways to go. Rejoice, rejoice, O Israel, to thee shall come, Emmanuel. Hmm? So uh, we will uh, sing that song later, but I would simply say to you now that uh, if you say, I've never heard of these O antiphons before, yes you have. If you sung O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. All right, let's begin. Let's start moving through them. The O Anaphons, all right? Um, December 17th, the first one. Now, I'm reading you know, from your notes, not the, the, the hymn. So, the, the, the trans, this is an English translation. O wisdom that comes from the mouth of the Most High, that reaches from one end to another, and orders all things mightily and sweetly, come to teach us the way of prudence. And I always give you the Latin underneath it just because there, there's a certain, if any of you know Latin, there's always a richness to these ancient languages that our, uh, our own language sometimes, I say sometimes, lacks. 
Okay. Wisdom. Wisdom. Notice again, the Anaphon says that, we, 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 that wisdom orders all things. Now, we are tapping into a very rich vein in the Bible that, um, to some degree, our Protestant brethren are less familiar with because they've eliminated some of the wisdom tradition. The Book of Wisdom, for example, the Book of Sirach, and so on, have been eliminated by them. But they still have some of it in the Book of Ecclesiastes and so on. But the wisdom tradition basically says that things are not just dumbly here. They speak to a kind of an order, a purpose, a vision that God has, that God instilled in creation uh, simply by the fact that He who is wisdom itself, He who orders all things, put that order in creation. St. Paul, for example, he says, um, he says that... Um, uh, ever since the, uh, you know, he's talking about the pagans now who don't have the Bible, he says they're without excuse because all they have to do is look at creation and conclude to God. And he says that ever since uh, the, the creation of all things, God's invisible attributes have been visible in the things that he has made. And therefore, uh, they are without excuse. So there's a beautiful vision here that you can study the orderliness of all created things. And it's amazing. Ponder with me. Just, just let's kind of work from the bottom up. Think for a moment of yourself and every atom that comprises you and the order of just that simple atom, a proton, a neutron, an electron, and whatever these subshell orbitals and all the stuff you chemistry people just, just make me angry about. You know, you know all these things. And, Listen, it's an amazing thing, and, and then that gives rise to these incredible things called molecules, and then this mysterious thing we call life. By the way, you think you've got stuff figured out, you don't have, you don't even know the most basic thing figured out, life. Think of, think of a, a stone and an acorn. At some level, they look a lot alike, a little stone, a little acorn. You put the stone in the ground, you can water for a thousand years, ain't nothing happening. <laughs> You take that acorn and you put it in the life because it has a mysterious thing in it, a spark that we call life. And you think you know what that means. You have no idea. My, my philosophy teacher and, and theology teacher as well, Father Francis Martin, said, life is organized energy. And he, says, and he says, what did I just tell you? He said, nothing. <laughs> it's just a bunch of words. We don't know really what life is. It's a mystery. Something, a mysterious spark is in that little acorn. You put it in the ground, you place some water, and it springs to life, and it becomes a mighty oak tree. But again, these, these amazing things that begin to work for purpose. So you start with the atom, and this amazing organization, and then you begin to, to look to some of the molecules, and then, the, the, if you will, the cells of our body. Did you know that every one of the cells of your body has a semi-permeable membrane? And that somehow it knows how to admit nutrients and keep out bad stuff. I don't know how it knows that, but it does. Every cell of your body, and it somehow knows what it's supposed to do. I'm supposed to become uh, part of the eye. I'm supposed to become a, a, a muscle, a piece of muscle tissue. Somehow, these things are mysteriously encoded. 
and all this organization. And then you begin to see that you look to your body and you see a magnificent coming together of systems, endocrine systems and nervous systems and even skeletal muscles and, a skeleton, and, and the skeleton itself. Some, some things move towards structure, some things through processes, and yet this amazing thing. Have you ever thought of all the things just to make your eye work? Amazing, astonishing complexity, and yet in all that complexity and order. And then we move beyond and outside our bodies into the ecosystem that everybody's a lot obsessed about today. But it's a magnificent thing. Photosynthesis is going on. Are you aware that there are Van Allen belts up there keeping the harmful rays of the sun so we don't get cooked like a microwave? Otherwise, you're popcorn. <laughs> boom, boom. The, the Van Allen belts are up there. And they're all tied into the system of volcanism and, and the, 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 you know, the core of our planet that, that has this magnetic field around the planet that keeps harmful rays out and lets the good rays of the sun in. Are you telling me that this all just happens by accident? Ecosystems. And then outside into the solar system, you've got Jupiter and Saturn out there catching comets for us. You've got uh, the asteroid belt keeping most of those babies at bay. Thank the Lord, right? And on and on I could go. Order, complexity, and yet order through every level of creation. 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 things mysteriously working together for order and purpose. This is the wisdom tradition that God steeps everything in wisdom and in order. And this hymn or this antiphon speaks to us of that. Again, a wisdom that comes out of the mouth of the Most High and reaches from one end to another and orders all things mightily and sweetly. It orders them, you see. And so again, this great vision of God's incredible work of ordering all things rightly and beautifully. You know, there's a beautiful thing I want to recommend to your reading the beautiful litany of creation in the book of Sirach. And I mentioned it there in your notes. And um, from about chapter 42 all the way through the end of 43. And I love the conclusion. It just talks about the magnificent... Some of the things I was just mentioning to you, not all at that level of detail, but the magnificence, the beauty of all these things that God has done. And it finally concludes this. It simply says, Beyond these things, many things lie hid. Only a few of God's works have we ever seen. Only a few of God's works have we ever seen. I hope that you develop a kind of a mysticism as you make your way in life, where you can just be amazed and let your jaw drop when you think of all of the complexity, the beauty, the order, the majesty of all these intricately worked things that work together at intricate levels that we can only, it makes your head want to explode if you think about it too much. And isn't it tragic that in the days of science where we have discovered how immensely complex and beautiful and magnificent people have lost faith? Because they think in being able to put words and sort of understand the process a little more, we have it figured out. We don't have it figured out. Just let me ask you a simple question. Why do things exist rather than not? Right? So, yeah, we don't explain ourselves, you see. You, you, you know, we, we think we have things figured out. I just went to you with that little acorn example. We don't have anything figured out. 
We don't know what life really is. We don't even, we don't know why things exist as opposed to not existing. We just know that they're rooted in God's love and the mystery of His magnificence. Now, a few things, a few other kind of biblical roots, and I want to read you a little quote from a hymn, and we've got to move on. I would just love to spend the entire time talking about this one antiphon. It is magnificent, you know? It helps you to become a mystic on the move, right? But notice again, the book of Sirach, I already, but St. Paul takes up the wisdom tradition. I already mentioned it to you, Romans chapter 1, and verse 20. For God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In the Catholic Church, we, are, we revere Scripture. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. But we also understand there's a book of creation. God speaks to us in what He has made. God speaks to you in your bodies, which are an aspect of creation. God also speaks to us in the great glory of the tradition. And so again, what we, the book of creation is an important thing. It's what we've come to call in the modern age natural law, but it's just that instinct that we can come to understand the Creator from the creation He has made. And that makes sense, amen? Yeah. And it takes a lot of kind of knuckle-headed refusal to believe to really set that aside. I mean, you can't look at this incredible world and know all the intricate workings and inner workings and inner relationships and say, well, it just happened by accident. You just can't do that. I mean, that's not a reasonable conclusion. You see, there's something of a kind of a, I'm, I'm putting religion in quotes here, but a kind of a religious fervor of those who want to shake their fists and say, no, it all just happened as blind chance. There's no creator. It all happened by accident. You're trying to ask me to believe that a tornado went through a, a junkyard and out came a fully functioning computer linked to the internet. <laughs> just, it just it defies... It's, it's, it's a very strange in, uh, refusal to believe what is obvious. The whole created order shouts, I was designed! I was designed! I have a creator and he is wise beyond all telling. And it just shouts that all day long. Now, again, there is uh, just a couple of other scripture quotes. St. John takes this up in the prologue of the Gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not made anything that was made. What, how did God create? Go back to Genesis. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. He sent out a word. And in the New Testament, we come to understand that that Word is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Jesus is the Word through whom the Father creates all things. The Logos. And that Logos imbues creation with a logike, a logic. The word Logos means Word. And logic means, if you will, the, you know, the, 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 the aspect or the wisdom or the order of that Word. And so the Lord speaks a Word, His Son. And through that Son, S-O-N, not S-U-N, all things come to be. And that Logos, if you will, imbues creation with a logike, a logic, a perceivable order, a wisdom that orders all things mightily and sweetly, as the Anaphon says. The letter to the Colossians then picks this up, right? It says, 
regarding Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominations or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's the whole wisdom tradition right there. Everything, God orders everything through his logos and imbues on everything a logike, a logic, a perceivable order. Everything in here is, and everything God the Father created, everything through Jesus, for Jesus, and in Jesus, and everything holds together in Jesus. And that's the wisdom tradition. Pretty rich, huh? Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this first one. I won't be able to spend as much time on the others, but this is an important thing to get right because we're living in a time of unbelief. And yet, never, never have we had the evidence that we have today of the magnificence of this order at every level. Atomic, subatomic, atomic, molecular, cellular, our bodies, the ecosystem, indeed the whole universe. We, more than any generation, can see this at every level. And yet, a kind of through the doctrine of demons, we have been lost and confused. But we have the evidence, and we need to do a better job, I think, in really insisting on this magnificence. It's kind of what Aquinas called the argument from design, right? I want to read you this little hymn, and we'll move on to the next one. But this is from a beautiful hymn called The Spacious Firmament on High. And let me read it to you. Because it basically articulates the wisdom tradition. And it's talking now about the firmament, which is the stars. In other words, the, the planets and the stars above us. The spacious firmament on high, with all the blue ethereal sky, and spangled heavens a shining frame, its great original proclaim. The unwearied sun from day to day does his creator's power display, and publishes to every land the work of an almighty hand. Now, that's the daytime. Now comes the night. Soon as the evening shadows prevail, the moon takes up the wondrous tale. And nightly, to the listening earth, repeats the story of her birth. While all the stars around her burn, and all the planets in their turn, confirm the tidings as they roll, and spread the truth from pole to pole. Oh, the stars, the planets, are shouting the Creator's great glory. And the final verse... What though in solemn silence all move round our dark terrestrial ball, what though no real voice or sound amid their radiant orbs be found, but in reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. The hand that made us is divine. Oh, praise the Lord. It's a beautiful old hymn, amen? So again, and by the way, some of you know Haydn's creation. It usually kind of takes, takes that text and you know, turns it into a whole concerto. So it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful text. All right. I'd love to spend forever on this text because we've got to retain a kind of a mystical sense of the glory of what God has done. All right. So again, let's just remind ourselves, a wisdom, the first one, a wisdom that comes out of the mouth of the Most High and reaches from one end to another and orders all things mightily and sweetly come to teach us the way of prudence. Could you go? Do you have the hymn? Will come, will come, Emmanuel? Let's just sing that verse. It'll be a little weird not doing the refrain, but just sing the verse with me now. The one on wisdom. 
come thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show, and teach us in her ways to go. Now we'll, we'll rejoice later. We'll just, we'll, okay. <laughs> December 18th. <clears throat> December 18th. The next one. O Adonai, O ruler of the house of Israel, who did appear to Moses in the burning bush and gave him the law in Sinai to come to redeem us with an outstretched arm. Now again, I need to go through this one a lot faster, all right? But uh, I want to say we're going to look at, later on, one of the others speaks of him as the great ruler. So let's set that concept aside. And mainly I'd ask you to look with me about this image of fire, fire, that the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai. Now, again, the fire, the idea of a fire, of a fire. Um, we see on the, the image of the burning bush, Fire is one of the more consistent images of God in the Bible. And um, it's a magnificent image of God because fire is something you've got to respect. It can bless you, but you have to respect it. Amen? Amen? You can cook food with it. You can heat your home. But you get too close and you don't respect its properties, you're going to get burned, literally. You'll be burned. So fire is a great blessing but something worthy of deep respect. And that's why it's a beautiful image of God. And this image of God appearing in the, in the burning bush, and then there's a lot of images. Go with me, if you will, to a moment in the Garden of Eden. And it says that God used to walk with God in the cool of the, in the, cool of the evening. Or, I'm sorry, Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the cool of the evening. But after they sinned, they could no longer endure the presence of God. And almost out of mercy, God excluded them from the garden and put the angel with the flaming sword to keep them away from that because they could no longer tolerate the presence of God. They just couldn't. So go with me now to the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses, the God has led the people out of Egypt and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai and God appears. There's a great theophany on the height, on the height of the mountain and he's calling Moses to come up. What is it? What is it? Thunder and lightning and peals of thunder and trumpet sounds and flashes of more lightning and earthquakes and rumblings. And the people are like, right? Now let me just ask you a quick question. Had God changed? No, we have, you see? So you see what's happened to us, right? We're, we cannot endure the presence of God. Not in our current, or certainly at that time, in their current unseemly and sinful condition, and even us in our sins. We're not ready to just walk on into God's presence and give Him a high five. That's not the way. We have trivialized God today. But they're so scared, they say, Moses, you're going up there and talk to him. <laughs> we can't even bear to hear his voice. All right, so Moses goes up. But there's this magnificent image of fire. In the book of Psalms, there's a lot of images of fire, right? It says that uh, God goes out as, as great flame. Flames go round about him and consume his foes on every side. Or we see another image of fire in the, in, the, uh, in the book of Malachi where it says, Who may endure the day of the Lord's coming? Or who may stand when He appears? He shall be like a refining fire, and He shall purify the sons of, of Levi so that they may offer worthy offerings. So God comes to us. The book of Hebrews says He is a consuming fire. The book of Psalms speaks of Him that way. Uh, we're told He's a refining fire. And I think for us the best image is the refining fire because 
A fire has a way of purifying. You know that from food, right? Many, many foods would not be edible if we didn't subject them to fire. And likewise, silver and gold and other things are purified through fire. And so God needs to purify us. So again, the text here says, O Adonai, O ruler of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai, please come to redeem us with an outstretched arm. And so we begin to see that this fire of God is a description of God, but it's also a description of what will get us ready. Go with me now to the upper room and the day of Pentecost. The rushing wind came through and suddenly tongues of fire appeared over all of them. And it began, you know, and they began to speak of the great works of God. Tongues of fire. It's, it's, those tongues of fire were sent to set them on fire and bring us up to the temperature of glory. I said, bring us up to the temperature of glory, right? So though that fire purifies, it burns away sin, but it also instills, if you will, the fire of God's love within us. And those images of the Holy Spirit is fire. All of those are ways of saying that God needs to bring us up to the temperature of glory and get us ready. Get us ready to see Him one day. So this great work of God, if you will, to purify us, uh, to get us ready and bring us up uh, to the temperature of glory is, is essential for us. Okay, And it, I leave you again with the image that I started with, which is that, that this fire, if you will, is... Fire is a very powerful image of the magnificence, the necessity, the beauty, and the glory of God, but also the need to have a holy, reverential respect and fear. You don't mess around with fire. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Respect. We love fire. Right now the womb is being kept warm by it in some way, but you've got also to have deep reverence for fire. It's a beautiful image for God. Go with me to the hymn again. Go with me to the hymn. So we're going to go down then to the second verse. O come, the Lord of might. O come, O come, the Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai in us in times didst give the law. In cloud and majesty and all. Wait to rejoice. Wait to rejoice. <laughs> Let's keep moving. All right. December 18th, and now the, uh, the, uh, the, we finished. So the 17th, the 18th. Now move with me to December 19th. <clears throat> a root of Jesse, which stands for a sign over the people, and whom the kings of earth, at whom the kings of the earth shall shut their mouths, whom the Gentiles shall seek. And come, come now to deliver us. Don't hit, don't tarry. So there's always this urging, come, come help us, come help us. So what we, we here announce and we, we speak of the Lord Jesus as the root of Jesse. Jesse. Now, again, this antiphon stresses then the historical roots of, of the gospel in and among the Jewish people. You know, the gospel and faith doesn't just look, live up in the clouds. It's very down to earth. It's among us. It's in our families. It's, uh, we find the Lord here among us. And Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation comes from the Jews. There is historical roots where the Lord formed a people. And not only, if you will, in a way, not only did he um, um, become, if you will, 
uh, you know, the, the vine, but, but he also, you know, became the very, Israel would form the very cradle where our Lord was found, and Mary, uh, the, 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 the great Jewish woman, Mary, it was from her that the Lord, our Savior, the Savior of all the nations, came forth. We have a debt of gratitude to the Jewish people. We have a debt of gratitude also and a sense of their dignity. And we pray that all of them will find their way fully to Christ, our Messiah. And we ought to evangelize for that purpose. But we ought never forget that there was a long, long period where the Lord used, if you will, this small and seemingly insignificant people to begin to plant a seed of salvation in this world. And he went, he went to them. And there's always going to be that, that great thing. So the Jewish people are not just the root and the vine, but eventually the very cradle of God's saving love for his nation, for the, all the nations, for all the nations. Now, and yet as all of the prophecies of the Old Testament said, there would come a day when all the nations, all the nations, would be joined to the saving plan of God. And I particularly relate to you a Romans 11, where Paul deals with this in great detail. And I, I don't have time because I've got to go through these anaphons kind of rapidly tonight. But Paul says that Israel was like a, a great olive tree or a, a vine of some sort or an olive tree. And um, certain unbelieving branches were pruned off. And you, namely he's talking to the Gentiles now, and I would imagine most of us are from Gentile stock um, in this room. He says, you are wild olive shoots. <laughs> and you were grafted on. You were grafted on. And so the really, I want you to be careful because we don't think that, we don't say that the Lord discarded his bride Israel, got rid of her. And go out and went out and found himself a younger bride. Now, we don't want that image, do we? See? It's one bride, Israel. Unbelieving branches were pruned, but other believing branches were grafted in. But it's the same bride. Okay? The Lord does not divorce and marry another. He forbids that. He stays with, a, with Israel, his bride. Sadly, some unbelieving branches are pruned. And maybe they can, St. Paul says, maybe they can be grafted on again when they come back to faith. But for now, accept the fact that you and I have been grafted on to the great vine of Israel. Every now and again, one of the heresies that we've been confronted in the church is that people are dismissive of the Old Testament in a too much of a radical way. And it's called Marcionism, where we just simply reject the Old Testament as relevant for us today. That isn't true. Now, some of those texts have been fulfilled. We know some of those texts have been set aside by later legislation, like kosher laws and things like that, but it, only because they've been fulfilled. But we have a deep connection and a deep debt of gratitude and a connection to everything that's gone before. God works away, and, and this is all stress in an anaphon like this. We've got to know the full tradition. Study the Old Testament, but study it in the light of the New Testament. That's how we understand the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament was pointing. The New Testament is what it was pointing to. So you look back and we understand the magnificence and the beauty that, for example, Isaac carrying wood on his shoulders up a hillside, wondering how this is all going to work out because I don't see the lamb of sacrifice, Daddy. <laughs> uh, that's all pointing to Christ going up that perhaps that very same hillside. Hmm? And God did provide the lamb, okay? Not that ram in the thicket, but now Jesus, who is the true lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So always this magnificent, rich thing. The gospel is not up in the air, some vague set of 
philosophies. It's very deeply rooted in an historical story about a people to whom we have been joined through baptism. We've been grafted onto the vine, the body of Christ, the vine, the one vine, the one bride, the one vine, the one body of Christ. All, all of this. And one of the great signs that the Messiah will come is that there will be a large-scale conversion of the Jews. So keep praying for that and working for that. All right? It is not that we're saying, well, the Jews have their own covenant, we don't need to worry about converting them. Exactly the opposite. They are our brothers and sisters in a way. They're our elder brothers and sisters, and they're the ones that uh, we have a special, the Lord specially wants them to find their way back so that He can come again in glory. Work urgently. Work urgently uh, to uh, continue to pray for the conversion of all the Jewish people, and indeed every man, woman, and child on this planet. Okay, so the root of Jesse. Go back now, let's sing that verse, all right? <clears throat> the third verse. Oh, come the rod of Jesse, stem from every foe, deliver them that trust thy mighty power to save and give them victory o'er the grave. December 20th. O key of David, O scepter of the house of Israel that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens, come, liberate the prisoner from the prison and, and them that sit in darkness. So this is rich. It talks about Jesus as the key as the one who opens and no one can shut, and who shuts and no one can open. He talks about him as the light of the world. It talks about him who has the scepter of power. So with all that in mind, I want to particularly, let's begin with the idea of a key. So a key bespeaks access, right? It, it speaks to us of someone who has the capacity to go in and out of something. Now, let's talk a little bit about why, why is the door locked to begin with? Why, do, why is there a key necessary? Why does Jesus need to be the key that opens? Well, I've already sort of set the stage for you when we went to the book of Genesis, right? Brethren, we could no longer endure the presence of God. And so in order to, in a, in a, in a certainly a, a kind of a merciful way, God excluded them from the garden. And he put before the entrance to the garden an angel with a flaming sword. No more access, not just to a garden, but the more critically, there was no access to the Father. We could not endure the Father's presence because of our sin. We needed to be healed so that that access could be restored. Now, don't make light of this. We do make light of it today. People say, oh, God's just a big old dude up there. He's, a, he's an old grandfather. We sort of turned him into a toothless tiger and, uh, and Jesus into kind of a harmless hippie. And we trivialize God. You know, we've got to be honest about that. Our culture has been very bad about this. Oh, God doesn't mind. He's a good old guy. He's, he's fine. I'm fine with God. <laughs> Brethren, God is holy. And unless we are holy... We cannot endure. The book of Hebrews says we are to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There, there is an incapacity of us to be able to endure the presence of the Lord if we are not ourselves made holy and purified. Remember how Isaiah went up into the heavens and he said, oh my gosh, he says, I've seen things I can't see. And an angel took a flaming tongue. He didn't just say, oh, don't worry about that. God's a big old guy. He doesn't care about all that stuff. That's not what the angel said at all. He took 
a flaming coal from the altar and purified the lips of Isaiah and says, because of this purification, you can endure for a few minutes anyway. All right? There is something that has to happen to us. We don't just walk into God's presence in our present unseemly state and think that we're going to be able to endure it. You know, it's a little bit like, um, some images come to mind, but you ever been in a really dark theater in the middle of the day and you come out and you can't stand the light? Ah, ouch! It's like two sticks in your eye. It hurts. Physically hurts. Because we're not accustomed to the light. Okay, it's the same with God. If we're not accustomed to His holiness, we can't endure it. And so the book of Malachi sends up that great plaintive cry, but who may endure the day of His coming? And who shall stand when he appears? The book of all through the Old Testament. Who can look on the face of God and live? It is said that when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he'd bring in voluminous amounts of incense to kind of mask in case he caught a sight of God, to at least filter it through all the holy smoke. <laughs> Have a little rope around his ankle and bells were on his vestment. He's still alive in there, okay? He's praying like this. Ring, ring, ring. He's still alive. If, if the ringing stops, uh-oh. And they'd have a rope to pull them out. That's, that's, that's terrifying stuff. Oh, that was just the Old Testament God. That's just terrible. I think God's a good old guy. <laughs> Careful. He's telling a real truth. We with sin cannot endure God's presence. We cannot because God is holy. Not because he's mad, but because he's holy. He is who he is. Again, that image of fire comes to mind, you know? Unless you're brought up to the temperature of glory, you cannot endure the Glorious heat. There's an old saying, hell is hot, but heaven is hotter. You've got to be brought up to the temperature of glory to be able to endure it. See? And that's those tongues of fire going to work. Now, with all that in mind, getting back to this idea of the key, so out of mercy, God had to distance himself from us. Okay? But he's our Father and he loves us. And therefore, he sent Jesus. And Jesus becomes the key he reopens access to the Father. How? By dying, cleansing us of our sins, by the shedding of His blood and the fire of His love. He gets rid of our sin. And there's that beautiful image of the veil in the temple being ripped in two from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, but from... This is an act of God now. From top to bottom, whoosh, ripped open. And access again to the holy place. So that brethren, brothers and sisters, you and I, now, if by the blood of Jesus Christ, have a perfect right to stand before the Father and praise Him. See? And we have access again to the Father. Now, that process for most of us is still underway, and most of us are going to probably need a little purgatory. <laughs> probably so. Because God is very holy. But you get the idea. The work is accomplished. Jesus has unlocked the gates. Not to some earthly paradise. He has unlocked now the gates to heaven. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Okay, he has unlocked the gates of very heaven itself. And in Jesus Christ, the head of the body of the church, we are already at the Father's right hand in glory. We are already there. I'd love to develop a lot of the angelology about that, but I don't have time. But again, the key of David. Now also we see here that uh, he restores us then to access, if you will, uh, to his father. It also mentions his scepter, which is a reminder of his authority. One day we have to remember we're going to stand before Christ who will judge us. Don't trivialize Jesus either. He's not a harmless hippie. He is the Lord. And one day he's going to judge us. For now, 
It is a time of mercy, and His mercy for us is rich. But there is going to come a day when we will render an account to Him. All right? And we need to have that proper balance. Right? The Lord wants to save us. He'll do everything He can. But at the end of the day, He's not going to force us to accept the things of His kingdom. And that's why there's a hell. It's not because He's mean or He's in a bad mood. It's because He's not going to force us to live in a place that we're not able to live in. You say, hell is terrible, Father. I understand, but it would be far worse in a way for a person who doesn't want the kingdom of heaven to live in the kingdom of heaven. Because I'm going to tell you right now, it would be far more miserable for them to be there. All right? So, mercy and justice with God are alike. All right? All right. No time to develop the whole theology of judgment now. But Okay, let's go back and sing this verse then, the key, um, the key of David. Oh, come the key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that lead on high, that we no more have called to sigh. Don't rejoice yet. <laughs> December 21st. O morning star, O brightness of the everlasting light, O sun of justice, come, give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Now, the, notice the Latin there too, O oriens, splendor lucis eternae, huh? O oriens. The word in oriens in Latin just simply means the east, the east, uh, as opposed to the occidens, which is the west. Hmm? So, oriens, oriental, occidental, you know, we get these words in English, right? Orients, O East. But of course, um, in order to more personalize it, we, we will often find translations of Orients as, and I list them there, morning star, the dawn, day star, morning light, sunrise, you see. Jesus, the light of the world. So Jesus again, the idea, but notice again this idea of the East. People look east, the time is near for the coming of the, for the dawning of the year. You get the idea, right? People look east. <clears throat> this is a liturgical issue, right? And uh, our, our brethren in the eastern churches still largely keep this, but we've kind of lost it in the western church, which is uh, that we don't face east to pray anymore. That was a very, almost, you just didn't even think of praying without facing east in the ancient world. You just face to the east, the land of the rising sun. That's where you... You, you, you preached. I mean, you, I mean you, that's where you prayed. You oriented yourself. Literally, the word orient means to be eastward. To be oriented means to be eastward, to be focused on God. Okay? In the Catholic tradition, we used to always face, pray the liturgy, of the, at least the Eucharistic prayer, facing at the high altar, and all the priests and the people all facing one direction together. And that's been lost today. And I would be in that camp that says we've got to recover it. It needs to be restored. It is a... Uh, okay. The idea of kind of forming a closed circle in praying is, is about as foreign to the ancient church as you can get. Uh, there, were, there were some theories that came up in the 40s and 50s that these house churches would have been very informal, sit around a table, have mass, and that was just never the way it was celebrated. And any decent archaeologist today would say, well, that's just ridiculous. That's not how they did it at all but they all face to the east. Now, east doesn't mean that the building can always face exactly east, but you would at least put up a, a crucifix, you know, to symbolize liturgical east. But we all turn to the east to pray. At the end of every sermon, St. Augustine would say, Conversia Dominum. He'd be speaking to them, facing them, obviously, for the preaching. He says, now let's turn to the Lord. And he'd go up to the altar 
and celebrate the Eucharistic prayer. This was always the tradition uh, in the ancient church. I'm beginning to restore it in our daily masses, for example. We're using our Mary Chapel and uh, we're using the altar facing to the east. Several bishops in the country are doing that now, especially for Advent, and trying to reteach because a lot of people say, oh, the priestess is back to us, and you've been through a lot. I know you've all been through a lot. All the liturgical changes. So, trying not to make the same mistakes where we radically jerk people around and make all kinds of crazy things that divide and get people angry, and trying though, to teach again. We've got to get our orientation back, huh? literally and figuratively. And um, we, uh, we need to, uh, again, at least for the Eucharistic prayer, begin to see that the priest is leading us in the, in the person of Christ back to God the Father and looking also for the great second coming of Christ in glory. Now, I give you some scripture quotes in your notes there about how this is a consistent theme in scripture too, that we look to the east to look for God. So, for example, Matthew 24, Jesus says, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. He comes where? From the east, the rising sun. Or again from Baruch, Look towards the east, O Jerusalem, and see the joy that is coming to you from God. I think that was today's reading in the uh, first uh, today. So, uh, look towards the east, O Jerusalem. See? All right? Uh, likewise, again, this is a fairly long one here, but i just quickly summarize it by saying, Ezekiel saw the glory of God lift up and head off to the east. And for ever since, the people have been looking to the east for God, the glory of God to return. And that's a beautiful passage from Ezekiel. And then again, there is this uh, quote from Psalm 68. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing to the Lord. Sing to God who mounts above the heavens of heavens to the east. To the east. So again, this idea of looking to the east is a way of looking toward God. It's a, uh, it doesn't have to literally be compass east, but it means there, there is this idea, there's an orientation toward prayer, okay? But here's the other image, that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light of the world. But how is he the light of the world? See? He is the light of the world because he is very God himself. He says, I am the light. He doesn't mean I'm not a light, I'm not like light. I am the light. That's, that is to say, my truth, my, uh, my majesty, my glory is the light by which you live and by which you walk. However, it is a light that is meant to shine now in this world through us. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> He's depending on us. I wouldn't do that if I were him. <laughs> right? you know, if I were going to do this thing, I'd, I'd be in charge. Right? I'd ride down on lightning bolts and tell everyone who's in charge, you know, aren't you glad I'm not God? But you get the idea. Um, but he wants his light. But he says, now again, this is understood in a subordinate way, but he says to us, you are the light of the world. Not, not by yourself, but when I live my life in you, and you're rooted in me, you are the light of the world. Well, why are we in such darkness today? My friends, don't look very far. Just look around. See? Now, hopefully we're a little bit above average but in this room, <laughs> but I'm going to just say we've done a pretty poor job of being a light in this world. We have, been, we have spent the last 50 to 60 years trying to look like everybody else, sound like everybody else, be like everybody else, be accepted. All of these things are... <sighs> it's tragic. We have not been what we're supposed to be. We have not been the light. And then you say, well, how do things get so dark? You are the light of the world. In other words, like you're doing tonight, lay hold of this vision of God. Lay hold of these teachings. Start to live them. Meditate on them. 
and gloriously teach them, not just by your words, but by the way you live your life, and you become a light. Now, by the way, light has different effects. Some people love the light. Oh, that's beautiful. It's shining and beautiful. Other people, Turn off those lights. It's harsh. You know, you're, you're going you're gonna to become a pariah to some. And some, oh, I don't want that. Oh, we, so we, to simplify our life, we just sort of, we put it all under a bushel basket. See? You know? You know how you are in the morning when you're grouchy? No, I'm never grouchy in the morning, but you are. <laughs> but you turn on the light, you say, turn off that light. And when people have been in darkness a long time, and you flip on a light, they're not always going to be happy. Okay? Now, where's the crucifix? I did not end up on that cross because he was Mr. Mild Manners. Now, I don't mean to say go around and make people mad. That's your goal. That's not your goal. But be the light of the world. Let Jesus shine in you. And you will be loved. And you will be hated. Both. See? But again, we have to see how dark our world becomes very quickly when we subtract Christianity. That's a new book, by the way, a collection of the writings of Joseph Sobrin that just came out. And the title of it is Subtracting Christianity. What happens to a Christian culture when we subtract Christian? <laughs> you know? See, and that, well, you don't have to look very far. Just look out the windows and look around, okay? All right. So again, well, I don't have time to develop this. I've got, we're getting near the end, so I've got to keep moving through two more before we're done. So let's, uh, let's realize here again this beautiful image of Christ as our orient, the one who orients us, the one to whom we look. We look to him. We look to the east. We're oriented. He's always our compass. He is the way that orients us. And likewise, he is our light, the day star, the morning star. Okay? So let's sing that particular verse. Oh, come the day spring from on high and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and the death's dark shadow put to flight. Wait a minute, wait a minute, don't rejoice yet. So we're now at uh, December 22nd. Uh, o King of the Gentiles, the desire of them, cornerstone that makes two of two one, come to save man, whom thou hast made out of the dust of the earth. Now, here we have again, this is where I said we get back to this image of king. You know, is Christ your king? Oh yeah, he's my king. I sing it in church. Come, come thou almighty king, or, or crown him with many crowns. Of course he's my king. Jesus is the king. But what does he mean when he says he's your king, see? And there's a wonderful little passage there in the trial before Pilate. Pilate says, are you a king? And uh, Jesus puts him on trial and says, are you saying this on your own or have others just been telling you about me? Now that's a wonderful question that Jesus asked. You need to answer that. Are you just talking about Jesus based on what other people have said or how do you know him? How do, you, do you know it's true? You know, all the teachings of the church, you know, are you just saying, well, St. Augustine said, and my pastor said, and the catechism says, all very good, but what do you say? You know, there comes a point when we have to stand up and say, and I say, see, we, I personally, in the laboratory of my own life, have tested these truths and found them to be so, found them to be true, and I am also a witness. Okay, so that's a very good question. I can't preach that tonight, but that's another long sermon I usually preach, but... 
Um, but then he goes on to say, Pilate says, so you are a king. He says, you say I am a king, Jesus says, but here's the deal. I came into this world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Is Jesus Christ your king? Do you really base your life on what he said? Does he have authority in your life to call the shots? Is he, are his priorities your priorities? Are his teachings your teachings? Are they the way you think? Getting back to the idea of a trial, who's on trial? Is the world on trial in your life? Or is the Bible, Christ himself, on trial? I'm going to tell you right now, most Catholics have it completely backwards. Well, that's just dumb. That doesn't make any sense what that preacher is saying up there, that dumb priest. What does he know? And that Bible. And They're putting the Bible and the teachings of the church on trial based on their worldly ways rather than putting the world on trial based on God's ways. And we've got to get it right. And so Jesus says, I'm a king, but in this sense I'm a king. I came into this world to testify to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So the question for you and me is, do I listen to him? Or do I just check off the God box, put a few coins in, and say, I'm done with you now. Don't bother me for the rest of the week. Now, I'm going to hope that we're a little above average in this room. Right? But you all, we all know that there are a lot of people that give lip service, and you know, thank God they give any service, but they, they're not really, Christ isn't really the king. He isn't really calling the shots. He's not the one who sets their priority. He's not the one who really tells them what to think. It's the political party that tells them what to think, or the worldview, or the label conservative or liberal, or uh, what the music guy, the guy I think is just great and he can really sing great music, tells me to think, or the movie star. See, they're the ones who are really on the throne and are calling the shots, and Jesus is being excoriated, and we just stand there and take it, and we think, well, maybe this is kind of crazy old talk. You know, maybe we need to update it. Maybe we need to be more with it and hip. So again, the question, I'm trying to bring kingship in for a landing. We can talk about kingship in a very abstract, praise-like you know, praise way. He's my king! Viva Cristo Rey! But at the end of the day... People go back to fornicating or, you know, being angry and lustful and bitter and unforgiving and almost everything Christ told them to do, he's not really on the throne. He's not really calling their shots. They're singing Viva Cristo Rey, but they're not really living it. So, again, the Lord wants to kind of bring this idea of kingship in for a, a landing for us, you see. So, again, we see here, therefore, O King of the Gentiles. Oh, and then it goes on to say, O desire of them. Do you really desire? You see God and the things of God. Now, I know we all struggle, all of us, but I mean, it's a human, common human problem. We struggle to want to pray. We sometimes struggle to want to go to church, struggle to want to do what is morally upright and so on. But really, deep down, ask the Lord for a deeper and deeper desire. You know, Lord, I can't wait. I just can't wait to see you one day. You know, the very closing words of the Bible, Maranatha, huh? come, come, Lord, soon, just come, come. You see, excited, joyful, I want what God wants. I want the things of God. I want soon and very soon to go at home and see the king, you see. Okay, so ask for a deepening and desire. Obviously, again, hopefully we're above average. Why would you come to listen to this loudmouth priest if there wasn't something of a desire in your heart for the wisdom and the truth and the beauty of God, see? But there's a lot of people who are really 
deeply struggling to have any desire for God whatsoever. All they want is baubles, bangles, and beads that we used to talk in the old musical. huh? They just I tell you what, Lord, I don't really need heaven, but just, just give me a new pay raise and help me to get the widescreen TV and that'll be enough. <laughs> really. Sad, sad. Well, let's sing this antiphon and do the last one. I've got to wrap it up. <clears throat> oh, come desire of nations bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid every strife and quarrel cease and fill the world with <coughs> Almost there, almost there. Now then, uh, the final one. It's kind of a summary, so we won't need to say a lot about it, or I could say too much about it. So, O Emmanuel, our King, our Lawgiver, longing of the Gentiles, and their Savior, come to save us, O Lord our God. Okay, so again, so much of this we've already developed here, right? That He is our, the longing of all the nations, that He is our King, that He is the great lawgiver on Mount Sinai that we talked about, that He is, but this last one, just simply to say, He is our Savior. He is our Savior. Hmm? He is the one who snatches us out of the roaring waters. He's the only way back to the Father. He is the one who alone can set us free. He is the one so... I want to then maybe, on this particular antiphon, just simply go to the first word, O. Oh. oh. What is O? Oh? Hmm? Anyone know what part of speech it is? It's an exclamation, yeah. It's like, oh! You know? It's kind of a, it's just like a, it's like a sigh or a cry. Hmm? Oh! 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 It's, a, it's, it's an expression of our longing. Hmm? It's an expression of our, of our sighs, of our longings, of our hopes, and of our yearning, and also of our pain and our, our feeling of lost and desertion. And so we just keep crying out, oh, oh. And then this beautiful word, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, come to be God with us. Because, you know, at the end of the day, what we need to finish on is just this idea. You and I have a God-sized hole in our heart. And only God can fill it. The world cannot close the deal. It's just too big, the hole in our heart. I've in other talks, done this with you, but I'll just prove to you that God exists. Your desires are infinite, aren't they? Come on, they are. You're never going to be satisfied, and you shouldn't be, not with anything here. Well, how could a finite world give you an infinite, infinite desire? How could a limited world give you an unlimited desire? It can't. Nothing can give what it doesn't have. So I've just proved to you that there is an infinite, that there is a that there is a limitless one that we call God, and He is calling you. And in all those desires, those yearnings, those longings that just go, oh! God is waiting for you there. Every desire you have, every longing, every, even the sorrowful and the painful things are all just God saying, come to me. Come to me. And He has to be Emmanuel. He has to be God with us to seal the deal. He can't just be some great guru. It's just not enough. We don't need another guru. We don't need another philosophy. We need God. So come, O oh come, Emmanuel. So let's sing then. Well, I have to end now. And, but I want to just say that um, there is this magnificent, you know, beautiful hymn that we have here. So we're going to sing the last verse. And this time we will rejoice. 
O come, O come, Emmanuel, and a ransom captive Israel. Let mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, O ye Israel, to thee shall come Emmanuel. And once in Latin, huh? Gaudé, 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 Emmanuel, nasce tur prote Israel. Which more literally means, uh, rejoice for Emmanuel will be born to you, O Israel. Amen.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.